I'm Lee Nix, and this is a special holiday episode of A Memory of Malice. Hi loves! Like I said in the intro, I'm here with a special holiday episode today. Today we're going to cover the massacre of the Lawson family. This is more commonly called the Lawson family murders, but I think that's something of an understatement in this case. When eight people die, I think it's safe to call it a massacre. Just a friendly warning, there's child murder in this case. This includes the death of a four-month-old baby. I know that sometimes people can't handle cases that include children, so I'll understand if you want to skip this one. But with that done, let's begin. December 1929, an America where the Great Depression had just begun. In the farmlands of Germantown, North Carolina, the Lawson family toiled to harvest tobacco from the land. The family was a large one and seemed to keep steadily growing. The family's patriarch was 43-year-old Charles Davis Lawson, known as Charlie to friends and family. Then there was Mother Fanny, a sweet 37-year-old woman who was a devoted wife and mother. After that came the children, Arthur, Marie, Carrie, Maybell, James, Raymond, and Mary Lou. These seven children had ages ranging from 19 years to four months. There had been one more child in the family, but six-year-old William had sadly died from pneumonia some time before. The farm was a successful one. In 1927, Charles and Fanny bought their land for a total price of $3,200. This is roughly equivalent to around $54,800 in today's money. They weren't going to pay that price up front. They agreed to pay $500 a year, and that's about $8,500 in today's money. So that's quite a bit of money. Assuming they paid at the start and not the end of the year, that means they paid about $1,500 of that off, not accounting for interest. This is especially notable since Charles's brothers, Elijah and Marion, were still sharecroppers. Sharecroppers are a type of farmer that doesn't own their land and instead pays their rent to the landowner by giving them a percentage of their crop. So Charles had done very well for himself and his family. You're probably getting tired of me harping on their success, but I'm going over it for a reason. Almost two weeks before Christmas Day, the family headed into Winston-Salem in one of their old pickup trucks. The Lawson family had three used trucks, almost unheard of for that time. While they were there, they each got new outfits and had a Christmas portrait taken. This seems like an extravagance for a farming family, and later would be pointed to as a grim warning. But we can see that the Lawsons had money, so this could be perfectly innocent. Nevertheless, it remains a macabre coincidence in this case. In the photo, the Lawson family stands with the dour looks on their faces that are common for the photos of that era. It was more than that photos took a long time to develop. For a long time, taking your photo was seen as a serious activity. The taller members of the family stood in the back, Arthur, Marie, Charles, and Fanny holding baby Mary Lou. Seated on a bench in front were James, Maybelle, Raymond, and Carrie. In two weeks, 
eight of the nine family members assembled would be dead. Wednesday, December 25th, 1929, dawned on a household devoid of most signs of the Christmas holiday. There were no decorations, no gifts, and no tree. On a working farm of this era, this wasn't that unusual. No one had the time or effort to waste on decor, and the family had already received new clothes, which was a pretty princely gift. That wasn't to say there were no signs of the holiday. For one thing, they had an overnight visitor. A relative, Sanders Lawson, had stayed over on Christmas Eve. Marie had made a raisin cake and then proceeded to prepare for a date she had with a local boy. And the neighborhood men had all gathered on the Lawson property for a friendly target shooting competition. Before long, most of the men had dispersed. Charles Lawson told his son Arthur and Sanders Lawson that he was running low on ammunition but that he wanted to go hunting in the woods. So he sent them off to buy more ammo. Now, I have to talk about the elephant. No, the woolly mammoth in the room. There's a book on this case. It's pretty much considered the book on this case. It's called White Christmas, Bloody Christmas, and is written by Bruce Jones and Judy Smith. Full disclosure time, I don't like or trust this source much. There are a lot of reasons for this. One, the pair fantasize whole sections with what they believe happened, complete with dialogue. They admit they do this. Chapter 4 of their book is a great example of unprovable dramatization. Two, their book is a life support system for a theory, which I also dislike. When authors do this, they end up ignoring or downplaying any evidence that doesn't fit that theory. The book mentions a neighborhood boy that was in the Lawson home, but I found no other first-hand source that mentions him. Even if he was there, his presence doesn't matter much to Charles Lawson, and the boy doesn't do anything of much note, so I'm just going to ignore him. Just keep in mind that for the first little bit of this, there is supposedly a neighborhood boy in the house who runs away when things start to get violent. But let's get back to the timeline. It's generally agreed that Carrie and Maybelle, the 12- and 7-year-old Lawson girls, were heading out somewhere that day. They were likely headed to an uncle's house because they were outside in their winter coats. The girls had just passed the tobacco barn that stood a fair distance from the home when a shot rang out. We can't be sure which girl was shot first, but we know that she was shot with a blast from a 12-gauge shotgun. The second girl was quickly killed in the same way. Anyone near enough to hear the reports probably just thought it was someone hunting in the woods. The wielder of the gun was Charles Lawson. After he shot the girls, he proceeded to beat them to make sure of their death. The authors of the Bloody Christmas book posit this as a pseudo-charitable act. He did it because he didn't want them to slowly bleed to death and be in pain. After the girls had died, he hid their bodies in the barn, resting their heads on rocks. He then headed towards the family home. Fanny was on the porch when her husband returned. We don't know whether she saw her death coming. It wouldn't have been unusual for Charles to come home, gun in hand with bloodied clothes. He hunted for rabbits often, and I'm sure he knew how to field dress his game. 
but perhaps she saw something in the amount of blood or even his demeanor. I hope she wasn't aware that she wasn't scared. Charles shot his wife where she sat on the porch. Inside the house, the other children were immediately terrified. The two boys hid while Marie stood shocked. Charles entered his home and shot Marie. Interestingly, this caused the clock on the mantelpiece to break at exactly the time of her death. The concussive force of the shotgun blast was enough to break the delicate inner workings, which is positively eerie. This is one of the most believable bits of information in Bloody Christmas, which comes from the fact that Bruce Jones was a watch repairman. The book says that James was killed next, and then Raymond, but I believe it was the other way around, and here's why. Raymond was behind the stove, and Charles couldn't aim the gun at him. He tried to shoot him, but the barrel of his gun bent and rendered it useless. Somehow, Charles got Raymond out from behind the stove. How, we don't know. But when he did, he beat him to death and turned to find James. James was hiding beneath a bed, where he could have easily been shot. He wasn't shot, he was dragged from beneath the bed and beaten, and this was most likely because the barrel of the shotgun had already been bent while Charles was trying to shoot Raymond. That's why I think that Raymond was attacked first. After killing the two youngest boys, only baby Mary Lou remained, and Charles beat her to death as well. Charles Lawson killed seven people on Christmas Day, and no one knows why. The first people to discover the deaths were Charles's brother Elijah and his sons. They went to visit and looked in a window and saw the dead bodies of those in the house. They immediately left to inform the town. Men from all the neighboring farms came to try and find out who had done this awful thing, and it didn't take them long to realize that Charles was missing. They weren't left wondering about his absence. A shot rang out from the forest, and they found Charles Lawson's dead body in the trees. It was clear that he'd been there for a while. Footprints circled a tree in the snow as if he had been pacing it. A few unfinished letters lay around his body. An odd fact is that Charles had $60 in his pocket. This was a lot of money for that time, about a thousand bucks now. It's an oddly large amount of money to just carry around on your person. Perhaps he intended for the burials to be paid for with that? Arthur returned from his errand to find his family dead. I can't imagine how horrific that must have been for him. The bodies would be buried together in one large group plot. It was 10 feet in length and 20 feet in width, so as to accommodate three adult-sized caskets and four child-sized ones. Mary Lou was buried in her mother's casket in her arms. The victims and their murderer were all buried together, and they shared a single headstone. They were buried next to the grave of little William Lawson. The inscription on the tombstone has a verse from a hymn by Maxwell N. Cornelius inscribed upon it. Not now, but in the coming years, it will be in a better land. We'll read the meaning of our tears, and then, sometime, we'll understand. From what I've gleaned from the context, it's a hymn about understanding your pain and hardships after you've died and gone to heaven. 
which seems fitting for such a shocking crime. This religious community had seen shocking evil, and they could only turn to God for answers. There are two major theories as to why Charles Lawson might have done this. I'm going to talk about the theory I find less likely first. It's not that I don't think the theory is possible. I just think that there's no direct evidence of it. It's all just rumors and hearsay. The book White Christmas, Bloody Christmas posits that Charles Lawson was sexually abusing his daughter Marie and that she was pregnant. The murders were a combination of anger over Marie telling her mother what he had done and that she was going on a date with a boy that evening. The evidence of this theory is shaky at best. Stella Bowles was a relative of the family, and she was around 13 years old at the time that the murders occurred. She came forward 60 years after the murders to tell the authors that she'd overheard the women in the family, discussing what Charles had done to Marie. Later, her aunt told her the whole story. Basically, the gist of the story is that Fanny had told her mother that Charles had been incestuous with Marie. So, this is a story told by Fanny, to her mother, to her aunt, to her young relative, and to the authors. That's a lot of people to tell and reshape a story. Later, Marie's best friend came forward to say that Marie had told her that she was pregnant and that Charles was the father. The authors were originally turned on to this theory because someone took a tour through the old Lawson home and a man told them the story. The problem I have with this theory is the lack of evidence that this occurred. Marie wasn't visibly pregnant, and we heard no evidence of a doctor's visit or the like. If she didn't 100% know she was pregnant, I doubt she would have said something so scandalous to anyone, even a best friend. Then, as now, it would have more likely ruined her reputation than her father's. As for Stella Bowles, I'm not saying she didn't hear what she heard, but we don't know if it was true. It could all have been speculation. There's not one piece of evidence to prove this theory anywhere besides second- and third-hand accounts. It's like playing a game of telephone, but over the course of six decades. Don't even get me started on the rumor. This one is scandalous, and I'm sure it sold books in the 90s, but I don't feel it has a lot of merit. Now the theory, I think, is a lot more likely. Charles Lawson had a traumatic brain injury that exacerbated his already abusive behavior. While building his tobacco barn, Charles Lawson realized that he needed to dig some drainage. Long story short, he didn't pay attention while doing this and accidentally hit himself in the head with a mattock. A mattock is a nasty-looking tool that looks similar to a pickaxe. At one end is something called an adze, which is a broad, curved hook used for digging, prying, and chopping. The other side of the head is a pickaxe point or an axe head, usually. Lawson was examined by a local doctor who said the injury wasn't as bad as it seemed. But I wonder. Today we know that any head impact can have lasting effects, even ones that don't seem to cause obvious injury. Our understanding of traumatic brain injury, or TBI, has increased, but there's still a lot we don't know. We do know that repeated head injuries can increase your chance of TBI 
but a single injury can cause the disorder too. TBI can contribute to dementia or Alzheimer's. Aggression after a TBI is a common symptom. Before continuing, I want to point out that harming or killing others because of a TBI is rare. If Lawson did kill his family, his possible TBI was a contributing factor and not the cause. Some people reported that after his injury, Charles would suddenly lose the thread of conversation and walk away in the middle of sentences. He began to get severe headaches, what we would probably describe as migraines today. At night, he had trouble sleeping, and he would aimlessly wander around the house and barns, which reportedly frightened Fanny. He also would sometimes bolt from the bed to check his guns, which I'll bet was also pretty terrifying. As for possible abusive behavior, it's hard to tell. It was the 20s, after all, and societal norms were different. But even if you clearly ignore the fact that he was a family annihilator, which skewed towards older males with abusive tendencies most of the time, there were a few troubling signs. A neighboring farm, which would have been a fair distance away considering this was farmland, would hear what they described as arguments in the evening. A raised male voice yelling for hours each evening isn't what I would term an argument, but I digress. Charles said in conversation once that he wouldn't mind dying if I could only take my family with me. Which is classic familicide talk. What the hell were his friends thinking there? The clear signal of trauma in the home that I read might not mean much to everyone else, but it meant a lot to me. Nineteen-year-old Arthur was the only one in the house strong enough to stop his father when he lost his temper, and he began sleeping in his clothes so he could jump up and be ready at a moment's notice. This teenager didn't feel safe enough to be fully comfortable even when he slept, and that's such a telling fact. I believe that Charles had planned to kill his family on Christmas. A lot of family annihilators pre-plan their actions. Whether or not he planned the picture as part of that is up to you. I'm not sure, and it doesn't really matter. He seemed to be the most brutal to the youngest children. This seems directly in contrast to the theory that he killed his family because he was sexually assaulting Marie. You'd think she or Fanny would be treated the most brutally. However, both were killed by single gunshots. Every young child was beaten, even the baby. Neither theory really accounts for Arthur being spared. My best guess is that Arthur was the eldest boy, and Lawson wanted his name to pass on. Or perhaps it was because Arthur was old and strong enough to stand up to him, and he didn't want to leave his plan to chance. Although it's pretty hard to fight back against a shotgun blast. In 1929, Charles's brain was examined at Johns Hopkins University. At that time, it was noted that there was a low-grade degeneration of the brain. However, decades later, one of the doctors would say he saw nothing abnormal. 1929 was an awfully long time ago, and I wish we still had the brain to examine with current technology. Alas, it was either buried or lost. In the end, the motives behind his family massacre are a mystery. 
Maybe Charles Lawson had brain trauma that exacerbated a violent personality. Maybe he was assaulting his daughter and wanted to hide his secret. Or maybe one day he just snapped. We'll never know, and I don't think we could understand even if we did know. A mother and her six children are dead. A son was left orphaned and alone. Maybe why doesn't matter so much. Poor Arthur never got over the loss of his family. He became an alcoholic and died during a drunk driving accident at 35 years old. He was buried next to his family in the cemetery, reunited with his mom and dad and seven siblings. I hope whatever happened to him, he found peace. And that's really the end of the Lawson case. It's a tragic case, and I think most of us want to know why he did it and want that closure, but I doubt we'll find it. Unfortunately, the one person who could answer the question took his life. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please like, share, subscribe, leave a review or comment, that sort of thing. It really does help me out. If you want to support me monetarily, I have a Patreon and a Ko-fi with links to both in the details. If you sign up for the Patreon, you'll get benefits like access to the Discord, bloopers and outtakes, and your name at the end of the YouTube episodes, which should be up right now. Thank you so much for your support. When there are enough subscribers, I also plan to do AMAs and future episode polls. There's also a second tier just for access to the Discord and the bloopers and outtakes, if that's more your thing. I hope everyone celebrating Hanukkah is having a happy and safe time, and I wish a very merry early Christmas to any listeners who are gearing up for that celebration. And, as always, stay safe and stay hydrated. <laughs>